Can I rant for a sec? Please. Pay apps are way too public. What happened? Some rando hearted a payment from five months ago, and I realized people can see my entire history, who I'm paying, like full names. It's super weird. Yeah, it's weird. How are you paying your friends then? Apple Cash. It's all in messages. You can literally send cash like a text, and it stays between friends. Random people can't see it. Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? <laughs> Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply. Hello and welcome to Criminalia. This season, we're exploring the lives and motivations of some of the most notorious stalkers throughout history. I'm Maria Tremarchi. And I'm Holly Fry. And today we're talking about a 53-year-old French woman named Léa Anna B. We only know the initial of her last name, which if I were being strictly French, I would say B. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and she believed that King George V of England had been making romantic gestures toward her via secret messages. The British royal family and Buckingham Palace itself both have had their fair share of stalkers before Leia Anna. There was a man who climbed the fence and wandered around inside the palace before anyone caught him. This was near the same time as what we'll be talking about. And another stalker was caught trying to break into the diplomat's entrance. Uh, He was caught, but there were many, many others. And although... She wasn't the most famous royal stalker. Leana is for sure an interesting type of stalker. Her behavior made her a person of interest to the French psychiatrist Gaëtan Henri Alfred Huard Léon Marie Gaetion de Clarembeau. I'm so glad you and- had to say that and not me. <laughs> As the one of the two of us that speaks no French whatsoever. <laughs> Thankfully, to help us both, he did go by the shorter names of Gaëtan Gassion de Clarembeau and just Gigi de Clarembeau. He featured Léa Anna in a scientific paper he wrote about a disorder which came to be called erotomania, in which he described the condition more in depth and more clearly than it had been described in previous years. And you might recognize that word if you listened to our Valentine's special. But even if you didn't, don't worry, you won't be left out. We're going to get to the specifics in a bit. We don't want to get ahead of ourselves. So we're going to talk a little bit more about Leia Anna and her behavior toward the king. So King George V was actually not the first of her obsessions. Her delusions went way back before him, actually. Um, We don't know anything about her childhood, what it was like if she had the men. But we do know that at one time in her adult history, Leia Anna worked in retail. She was a saleswoman in a dress shop, uh, but she quit when she became the mistress of a wealthy upper-class man. Their relationship lasted for about 18 years um, until his death in 1907. Leana didn't take very long to become entangled in a new affair, uh, and this time it was with a man who owned a castle. So she was, you know, uh, looking for gents who could take care of her a little bit. A castle. Uh, (laughs) And this followed suit because her new lover bought a house for her and actually asked her to come and live there in that new house with him. And she did. But Leia Anna became lonely because this was out in the French countryside and she just felt a little isolated. And after just four years, their relationship ended. Her delusions were probably already beginning to develop at this time. And we think that because in 1917, during World War I, she became convinced that an American general in a nearby army camp was madly in love with her. 
He was not. This was entirely fabricated on her part. And a few years later, she became convinced that it wasn't the general, but rather it was King George V of England who actually was romantically interested in her. She truly believed he was in love with her, but she also believed that she had, at least initially, accidentally failed to notice any of his interest. And she chided herself for failing to notice the knowing glances and the cryptic remarks and the secret signs that she believed had been intended for her. Like a knock on her hotel room door that she had not answered, but now she understood that that must have been the king trying to come and see her. She also believed that she had overlooked the people disguised as special officers, including an emissary of the king, tourists, and sailors, who she thought George must have sent to communicate with her. And because she hadn't noticed these advances, surely the king now must think she had rejected him. Because she felt she'd missed all of these things, she was compelled to travel to London to explain to him in person that she did love him back. And that compulsion turned into action. She did travel to London. She wandered around the gardens in the general vicinity of Buckingham Palace, trying to catch a glimpse of George and trying to figure out a way that she could get inside. Although there was never any sighting or any contact between the two, there was, though, to her, an occasional sign. Of course, that has air quotes. These were things that she thought were signs from the king. And that was in the form of curtains. Leanna believed that when any curtain in the palace moved, it was George telling her that he saw her. The reality is that he actually probably was not home during this time when she was there. And if he was, it's said that he generally tended to enjoy spending time on his hobbies, which were stamp collecting and game shooting, and wasn't really spending a great deal of time gazing out of windows. Like, you know, dusting the curtains. <laughs> Peeking out. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So she spent thousands of francs on this adventure and eventually returned to Paris, having never actually seen the king in person, not even through a window. While traveling back home in December of 1920, she was agitated. She stopped two police officers on the train platform to tell them that she was being followed. And other passengers had been laughing at her. So she asked for their protection. And she became even more frustrated and agitated when they seemed confused by her story. She grew increasingly frantic. And she struck them, at least one of them. I I can't actually see how she would hit the second one without the first one. But anyway, um, (laughs) and then not surprisingly, she was taken into custody. We're going to pause for just a moment, and when we come back, we are going to talk about the condition known as erotomania and the man who described that condition. Can I rant for a sec? Please. Pay apps are way too public. What happened? Some rando hearted a payment from five months ago, and I realized people can see my entire history, who I'm paying, like full names. It's super weird. Yeah, it's weird. How are you paying your friends then? Apple Cash. It's all in messages. You can literally send cash like a text, and it stays between friends. Random people can't see it. Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? (laughs) Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply. Hey, everybody, it's Holly. Listen, I've been doing stuff on stage since I was a kid, which means that I have been doing my makeup since I was a kid. And I can turn out a look when I need to, but on my day-to-day, I really like to keep it a little more relaxed and low-key. I don't have time for a full face most of the time. But 
That also means that Thrive Cosmetics can have me covered no matter what I'm doing, whether I'm doing something on stage, like I have an appearance or a live show, or I'm just running to the grocery store. Something in their line is perfect. And what I really love and what's important to me is that they are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free. And to me, cruelty-free is very important in the cosmetics I use. I mentioned that I've been doing my makeup for a long time. I've gotten older in that time. And one of the things that I've done to refresh my look is switch over to their brilliant eye brighteners and use something like a rose gold shade to really like go all around my eye and then just blend it out and get a daytime smoky look. It makes me look a little more youthful and more refreshed. And it's just easy as pie. And it means that I don't have to mess with a whole ton of products. Refresh your everyday look with Thrive Cosmetics, luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 10% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com slash criminalia. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash criminalia for 10% off your first order. Welcome back to Criminalia. So now let's talk about what happened to Leia Anna after she got back to Paris. So after she was taken into custody, Leia Anna was taken to the Infirmerie Spéciale. That was a psychiatric crisis center that was also the headquarters of the emerging French forensic psychiatry field in Paris. And it was there that she was interviewed by the psychiatrist we mentioned earlier, Gaëtan Gassien de Clérembault. We should take a little side street, a little meander here to talk a little bit about who he was. He was born outside of Paris in 1872 and initially pursued law, uh, which was the field that much of his family worked in. So it doesn't it, it makes sense. He had initially wanted to be an artist and he showed promise in clothing design. So law was not at all a choice he made for himself when law didn't really interest him, which, right, no surprise there, uh, he, he moved not back to art, but instead medicine, which he began to study after he had finished his law education. Yeah, I I have read accounts that kind of hint that his father was very much like, well, if you're not going to do law, the only other option is to be a doctor. <laughs> You know, I said I read the same things and I was like, no pressure, no pressure. (laughs) He didn't actually start out in psychology, though, either. So he first started out spending his time studying the ways in which aircraft accidents impacted pilots through their recovery and beyond. Which I thought was fascinating. (laughs) It is. And that was specifically like physically. He was not it was not from a psychological angle. And that was where his doctorate work actually focused. But then in 1909, he shifted focus at last to psychological matters, and he kind of hit the ground running with this. He did a lot of work in the examination of the causes of hallucinations. This was actually a pretty natural flow from his medical career into this. It was like something that came up in the things he studied, and he started to just shift over to that. And that actually led to a syndrome eventually being named at least in part for him, which is Kandinsky-Clerimbault syndrome, that involves hallucinations and delusions, and often the belief that a force or a person external to the patient is somehow controlling them. So now you can sort of start to see that bridge from that study of hallucinations into delusions of external control and how that would have led to his work in cases such as that of Leanna B., as an interesting aside, de Clérimbault, by the way, actually did continue his work in the arts throughout his life, just not as his career. He also integrated them into his work. He used photography in his work studying psychology sometimes. He also painted. 
You can find his work hanging in a number of museums in France today if you go looking for it. He was really intrigued with these linen cloth stuff. Have you seen these pictures? They're, they're yeah, beautiful. Yeah, he did a big photography series when he was in Morocco. I was trying to remember if it was Morocco. Yeah. An examination of how like draped garments functioned in that culture. And they're really, really striking. They look a little ghostly. They do because you can't see the faces in any of them. But the actual cloth drapes so beautifully. I He was a great photographer with what I've seen. Uh, but we're not talking here to talk about his photography or to hear talk about his writings, which described erotomania. He did a really good description of it in 1921, and he referenced a patient he had met and counseled who was obsessed with British monarch George V, Lea Annabi. And the paper that he wrote, called Les Psychoses Passionnelles, used case studies that were mainly women. Women who all had a few things in common. They were often unhappy unemployed, lonely, unmarried or divorced, and they had delusions that a person, unattainable in some way, such as a high-profile position, being famous or part of a higher social status, was in love with or at least admired them. And the object of these obsessions could have been imaginary, could have been someone who was already deceased, or even someone the obsessed women had never met. And of course, having heard what you have already, you can see that Leia Anna fits this profile. Exactly. And so for what it's worth, although one study has found that 70% of reported cases of erotomania are women, men can also have this condition too, though it's thought to be really underdiagnosed among them. Um, males tend to be more prevalent in forensic samples because men with erotomania tend to be more violent than women are. And these statistics are why you hear us referring throughout the episode to women, not men, as the ones who believe that they have an admirer. Throughout its history, the definition of what we know as erotomania has also changed pretty considerably. Early references to the condition can be found in the writings of both Hippocrates and Freud. Of course, they were not calling it that. Freud, for what it's worth, bless his heart, explained the condition as the body's defense mechanism to ward off homosexual impulses. Have some more cocaine. <laughs> Again, I'm just blessing his heart yes, so Yes, I know. Others have suggested that the condition might be a person's psychological defense against the disappointment of unrequited love or rejection or the reality of a non-existent love life. We have come a long way since then. Until it became known as erotomania, it was also called things like erotic paranoia, phantom lover syndrome, and psychotic erotic transference reaction and delusional loving. That last one. But I love phantom lover syndrome. <laughs> I do too. I think that would be a really good emo band. Right? I know. Not for the name of a, of a disease, but like, <laughs> like the right. It did also have de Clarembeau's name. Some people called it Clarembeau syndrome, but that got confused with Kandinsky Clarembeau syndrome. So thus it evolved into erotomania. In addition to what Holly was just talking about, in the early 18th century, it was considered a disease triggered by and requited love. Then in the beginning of the 19th century, it was considered to be related to nymphomania or satyriasis. Getting a little bit more modern day, by the beginning of the 20th century, the definition had swung back to the same as the 18th century, but this time in the form of mental illness. Um, and from the early 21st century up through today, erotomania is considered a part of a delusional disorder. It's considered to be a delusional belief of being loved by someone else, which seems really simple. But as we've been talking about, not quite so simple. Uh, it has three phases to it. Hope, 
resentment, and grudge. This uh, doesn't sound fun at all. No, it doesn't. So <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, while we consider these very unfun possibilities, we are going to pause for a minute. And when we return, we're going to talk about those three stages and what they really mean and entail. Welcome back to Criminalia. We're going to talk now about how many cases of obsession or stalking can be linked to erotomania, although the two don't necessarily go hand in hand. So the onset of erotomania is typically sudden, but the course of the actual delusions that they take in erotomania is chronic. So in mild cases, this disorder can exist undetected by others for years. Until, that is, those problematic behaviors like calling or sending gifts or making unannounced house visits and other persistent stalking behaviors, once those become apparent, then obviously (laughs) this condition is detected. Then we need some professional help. (laughs) Um, So according to the research that's out there, when this is happening, the stalker, also known um, as the subject, starts out really optimistic about her chances. She's certain that the object of her affection, in Leia Anna's case, King George V, of course, um, initiated contact with her by means of signals and signs left only for her to understand. Remember the curtains in the palace, of course. And in these cases, the subject has rationalized why the object of their affections cannot possibly openly declare their reciprocal love. And that's usually because they're in a high-profile position of being the king of England or something else, like someone being famous. So they can't possibly say that they love you. Right. And with these delusions, the object of the subject's infatuation is believed by the subject to be communicating their love with subtle methods. This can be something as simple as a body posture changing or the arrangement of household objects, such as curtains, license plates on cars from specific states, which would take a lot of maneuvering to use that as a communication device. Hey, it could happen, I'm sure. (laughs) (laughs) And also just other innocuous acts that the subject becomes certain are meant to be interpreted by them as amorous overtures. And if the object is a public figure, the clues can even come through different means, such as like through the media. To be clear, this delusion is actually about feeling intensely loved not about loving. And someone who is experiencing erotomania, like Leah Anna, desires and seeks out contact with the victim, also known as the object. So we have the subject and the object in these instances through unwanted behaviors like we talked about earlier. And denial, of course, is a pretty big factor with this disorder. And this comes into play when the stalker cannot accept the fact that the object might not be interested in them. It also doesn't seem to make a difference if the object of their affection is married or otherwise committed, because after all, in the case of a woman stalker using that as the example, she will believe that they are in love with her and only her. But when her advances are continually rebuffed or ignored, after all, to the love object, as we have been calling it, she is a stranger. At this point, her demeanor can turn spiteful. Now we're in the the grudge or the revenge phase, the final act. And it's an important turn in the safety of the victim. Uh, When they don't declare their love for the stalker, regardless of how insistent the stalker is, the stalker in turn 
starts to feel humiliated. And they may at this point begin to hate their now former object of affection. And they may badmouth them or even become abusive toward them. Remember Lady Caroline Lamb and her smear campaign against Lord Byron. Who can forget? No one can forget. Uh, (laughs) And they may even take revenge on them or on their loved ones. And the delusions of love can turn into persecutory delusions. So persecutory delusions happen when someone, in this case our stalker, believes others, in this case the victim, are out to harm them. But there's no evidence that this is the case. This is all, as we said, it's a delusion. So erotomania actually is a condition that it it could persist for a few weeks, but it could persist for a few months. In fact, there are cases that have lasted for years. Um, It can be recurrent. And the person having these delusions may move on to a similar delusion about another object once they've gotten over their previous one. Uh, It's a fairly rare condition. And while we don't actually have numbers on the exact incidence of erotomania itself, delusional disorders in general have been reported as approximately 15 cases per 100,000 per year. And that's with a female to male ratio of an estimated three to one. There are actually two types of erotomania. The first, the primary form, is not related to psychiatric illness. The second form is seen when a person has a psychiatric illness or has suffered from head trauma, has dementia, might have convulsions, HIV or Cushing's disease, or they may have abused drugs or alcohol. And it's even been seen during pregnancy, perimenopause, and in women taking oral birth control. So there are a lot of factors that might trigger this. A lot. I mean, and a lot of really varying factors. <laughs> um, so for those with erotomania, the prognosis, you might be wondering, like many other health conditions, it just differs from person to person. Um, still, today, even though we've talking about this since, you know, centuries, uh, the right treatment is not completely understood. But... It does often include a variety of these things. It will include antipsychotics along with electroconvulsive therapy, as well as supportive psychotherapy, family therapy, social and environmental interventions, and risk management strategies. So treating any underlying mental health conditions, such as schizophrenia with paranoia, which is a common co-condition, is also beneficial. Now, all of this discussion of becoming obsessed with a person out of one's reach may have you thinking about your celebrity crush and wondering, like, do do I have erotomania? (laughs) (laughs) I think everybody's wondering that right now. (laughs) Right? Rest easy. Probably not. We mentioned the statistics. It is totally normal to find people in the public eye appealing and perhaps even fantasize about them. The line, of course, gets crossed when those thoughts manifest in behaviors that impact your daily life, and cross obvious boundaries of privacy and security. Go ahead and keep thinking about whatever actor or actress tickles your fancy. Exactly. Maybe just don't leave little gifts on their doorstep. Don't do any of that. (laughs) So that is our story about Leanna. And uh, we're going to move on to Holly now, our drink to uh, honor her. Right. So the chaser today, you may have gotten the inkling that really what this is about. <laughs> I love when you make yourself laugh before you even say it. <laughs> because I'm so completely, um, you know, transparent. Really, this is about me being 
fascinated with the story of Gaetan Gassion de Clarembeau. I specifically did not introduce the end of his life because that's a very sad story. It but, is, um, yes. But I thought I would do a drink more in honor of him, and it is called Sicos Passionnel. So I wanted to do something that is yummy and almost teeters on the verge of being a little overbearing to match up with the disorder. I also, in an effort to kind of include this idea that someone believes that it is love, to also make it a little sweet. It's actually quite sweet because it starts with two ounces of red vermouth. Mm. So you're starting, in, you're starting in phase one of erotomania. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and then you're going to add an ounce of cherry liqueur. You could see this is already kind of intense. Yes. Toss on top of that a dash of cherry bitters. Mm, revenge phase. <laughs> right. <laughs> if you were to sip this, you would go, wow, that's a lot. And so at this point, you're going to top it off with soda, four to five ounces of soda. You can use soda water. If you want to keep it sweet, you can go with the ginger ale option or any kind of clear sparkling soda, whether it's sweetened or not. I love to put ginger ale in everything. Me too. I just love ginger ale. For this one, that was my favorite variation of them. I will tell you, I also toyed with adding in a little bit of a berry-colored syrup here. I'm just going to say, don't be like me, kids. It is too much. Oh. <laughs> it definitely crosses the line into cough syrup, which while it's kind of a good representative of how this behavior crosses the line, it's not something you really want to drink. It's the curtains. <laughs> Whereas, right. Also, toy with the amount of soda or ginger ale that you put in there. I mentioned like four to five ounces. You can go lower than that if you like more punch to the flavor of the drink, or you can go more than that if you want it to be a little bit of a softer more subtle thing it's kind of one of those things that you can tell we're in winter because it feels like a springtime drink so clearly <laughs> i'm i'm yearning for warmer days even though it's not that cold here <laughs> but yeah so uh that is sico's passionnel because who doesn't want to drink with a French name? <laughs> I know, right? I won't be able to say it properly. I'll anglicize the whole thing. But I you can just call it erotomania if okay. you want. <laughs> but it is a tasty little treat. And like I said, once I figured out that even out and I stopped trying to force a berry flavored syrup into the mix, it immediately got better. Play with your drinks. It's fun. I'm trying to also just like find more ways that I enjoy vermouth because it's something that I've always mm -hmm. had in my head that I don't like, but then I will make drinks with it and be like, oh, this is lovely. That was kind of a driver in the midst of this. Figure out how to love vermouth and how to bring out the parts of it that appeal to my palate. Uh, thank you so much for spending this time with us talking about Sico's Passionnel and other things and the ways that our desires can manifest in unhealthy ways. <laughs> yes. Uh, and we will see you right back here next week for more unhealthy desires manifesting in ways that are not delightful. Always. We'll just Always. keep going. <laughs> week after week. <laughs> Criminalia is a production of Shondaland Audio in partnership with iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from Shondaland Audio, please visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.